This is an ABC podcast. Well, the moment of mercy has arrived. That's right, the minefield is finally finishing up for the year. Um, although the mercy is limited because I think we're playing best ofs from next week <laughs> over the summer. Welcome anyway to the minefield. We're trying to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. We'll eat all these my names. Scott Stevens is my co-host. And Scott, every year uh, when it comes to the final episode of the year, we try to figure out, hmm, what wraps it up? What kind of distills the dominant themes of our experience or our politics or our news cycle or, or whatever um, for the year? And I don't think we've ever landed on an answer like we've landed on today. <laughs> don't you think? Normally it's altogether more serious. Uh, oh, it's, I mean, the last couple of years have been incredibly grave. I, I'm not sure if you, I'm sure you remember. End of 2019, we oh, devoted yes. the show to, is this the year in which nothing mattered? Nothing because it seemed anymore. as though yeah. public figures could do things with impunity. And that was, and they were met with little more than a kind of, cynical shrug of the shoulders and eye roll. And then end of last year, is this the year in which everything matters? <laughs> every, right. every interpersonal decision that we made, simple acts of day-to-day -day kindness and hospitality or social distancing suddenly were mm. overdetermined. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I and think they were perfectly been... fitting, by the way, for those years. Yeah, I, I, agree. I stand by that. But then when I thought about, okay, what's this year about? And I thought, you know what this year's been about? Maybe this is a, a Melbourne answer. <laughs> this year's so. been about sitting on the couch watching telly. That's what it's been about. That we've done more of that than anything else. I mean, maybe you guys have been at the beach in Queensland. I don't know. The odd sporting event. But for so many people, I guess because it's a year in which the two biggest cities in the country were in lockdown for an extended period. Yeah. And in which at various points in our journey through the years, 60% of the country was in lockdown in, in population terms. There was that weird period everyone seems to have forgotten about where everywhere except Melbourne seemed to be in lockdown. Mm, that's true. Um, how quickly that passed. So in other words, there's been a lot of lockdown, even in places that don't do lockdowns very often or haven't, haven't had to endure them. And so there's been a lot of television watched. And for that reason, I was intrigued. I'm, I'm actually just going to cite the inspiration for this show, which mm. was an article that was published uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age by television critic Tom Ryan about the evolution in television and the characters and the storylines that we celebrate or are interested in in television over the decades. And I'm not going to go through his whole article because in some ways that's not the point. It was more the spark for where we went. But his argument was that television used to be a very innocent platform where, you know, you wouldn't say anything that was taboo and you certainly wouldn't show things that are taboo. And the characters that we liked were the good guys who were, were really unimpeachable in most cases and stories resolved themselves in sort of satisfactory, happy ways. And now we've emerged, he, he says that television's age of innocence is over and now we've emerged into a period where it's really all about hideous characters, very complicated storylines, resolutions that are not particularly neat. And uh, I don't know if he said this or I'm adding it, but quite a lot of really just graphic content and even language. Um, so in other words, everything that television wasn't before, it seems to have become now. And as soon as I read this article, I thought, oh, you'll love this. You'll definitely have something to say about mm -hmm. this. And it turns out I was right or right enough. 
Yeah. Well, look, the idea, I think, is fabulous. The article I was less than impressed with because I oh, thought that the opposition... Tom, Tom might be listening. Well, okay. Email me. Um, <laughs> the, the opposition that he created between the modern... Uh, okay, let's, let's introduce a form of technical language here. The, the parallel or the contrast that he drew between what we might call prestige television. And I want to try to define prestige television in a second. But between, say, something like Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, Succession, just to pull three notable examples out of the air. The contrast between that and, say, All in the Family or Different Strokes or I Love Lucy. I mean, that's, that I think is a fairly uninteresting contrast because in one instance, you're dealing with television under the conditions of the Hayes Code. Uh, in other instances, you're dealing with television that is free to air, that is family focused, that is oriented towards the largest demographic possible with the least amount of controversy possible at a time when even late night television like the Johnny Carson show was incredibly circumspect and discreet in the language that had to resort to sort of innuendo uh, um, rather than sort of outright smut. But isn't that exactly his point? Well, well, it, it is, but there's an awful lot that's being missed out in between. So if you think about, I mean, for me, one of the most interesting things, and I think we need to leave the development of cable, specifically something like HBO to the side for a moment. Yeah. But if you factor in, for instance, this interesting intermediary period, which is still free-to-air television, so it's still television that's oriented towards a large demographic that's going to be as inoffensive as possible and that's going to have a kind of – that's going to have a degree of generic recognizability. In other words, television, you tune into it and you kind of know what you think you're expecting from this kind of show and yet which does something – forms of television which do something within those constraints – that really are remarkable, that really are transgressive in one instance, or I think rhetorically brilliant in another. And the two shows that I'm thinking of are the two shows that dominated in many respects the 1990s. Uh, one is The West Wing, which I think simply in terms of the writing, the brilliance of the choreography, uh, the compellingness of the characters, and also the extent to which West Wing really was cast in contrast to the overwhelming sense of despair uh, that was felt with the decrepitude, the moral compromise, the inefficiency, the high but dashed hopes of the Clinton era. There was something about the writing that characterized West Wing and the extent to which it really did fan the hopes of a kind of, or fan the flames of a kind of democratic hopefulness. There was something about that. The characters were complex but they were likably complex, and they existed within a universe within which there was a recognizable telos, within which good deeds, while not always successful, nonetheless made sense, where virtue, while, while not always rewarded, nonetheless made sense because of, a, of an overarching realm of meaning. So even, for instance, even at the end of, uh, dear God, what was it, the end of season three, where President Jed Bartlett has to do the unimaginable and order or authorize the extrajudicial killing of a, a foreign dignitary who was believed to be, believed to be complicit in a failed terrorist attack on American soil. Or even that, while it's authorized, it nonetheless plays havoc on his soul for another season and a half to come. I think there's something about that. There's something about that kind of working with 
the canvas of American idealism, but mixing it up, trying to broaden, I think, the moral vernacular that's appropriate within democratic politics. The other example, Waleed, and I'm not sure what you think, but we've never talked about this, was Twin Peaks. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an unashamed David Lynch lover. Twin Peaks was nuts because it plays with kind of small town American nice. It plays with Americans' obsession with diner food. And it plays with the trope of the, the unexplained murder, the whodunit. And yet it gets into a degree of nihilistic depravity, of unthinkable atrocity, um, right up to the point, if anyone's not seen it, I'll try to be circumspect, but, you know, even, even to the point of incest, that for commercial, or sorry, for, for free-to-air television was unthinkable. And so there's something about that, the kind of the mixing up of genres or the, the transgressive plane with generic limits, I think was really important for bringing the great era, I think, of prestige television to birth, which was during the 2000s. And here it's shows like The Wire, which I think is the greatest show ever made. The Sopranos, which is by any account epoch-making. Shows like Breaking Bad, which I think is almost, almost, almost unimpeachable in the way that it affects a kind of characterological development over the course mm. of, of numerous seasons. And then right up to, well, I'm, I'm less of a fan of, uh, of Game of Thrones, as you know. But to my mind, a show like Succession exists within that pantheon of extraordinary, extraordinary achievements. And I think it's noting that progression that needed to take place through of transgressive playing around with established genres, pushing the edges for what was appropriate on free-to-air, in other words, advertiser-based television. I think there's something about that movement that's fascinating to me. And the question for me is, I guess, what has been gained in that movement from TV's Age of Innocence to the new era of prestige television? What's been gained What's changed in the way that we think about the nature, the limits, the demands, the constraints on the moral life? What's been gained in our sense of the extent, the breadth, the complexity of the moral imagination? What's been gained in the way that we can think about uh, what it means for a character to be a fully realized human being and not, say, a caricature? But I guess also what's been lost as we've gone through a universe where everything made perfect sense through a period of complexity where, okay, virtue is still understandable even, though, even if virtue doesn't always win the day, to an era. So we're we both huge fans of succession. A recent episode, an exchange between Logan Roy, the debauched patriarch of a failing global media empire, and his son, who is one of the most gloriously complex characters I think ever drawn up. Kendall Roy. There's an exchange that they have over a table where they're both served mozzarella, which you'll appreciate more when you watch the episode. They're trying to, it's not quite resolve their difference, but they're trying to have a parting of ways between father and son. And at one point, Kendall says to his father, you've won because you're corrupt and so is the world. It seems to me that that statement perfectly encapsulates the era of prestige television. The world is a world devoid of stars. Therefore, not only is virtue not rewarded, but viciousness succeeds. It's the corrupt who can succeed in a world 
that is already to its core all the way down corrupt. So that for me is the crucial issue. What's being gained as, as the world has complexified, as characters have complexified, but also is there something about this transition that has made us maybe too expectant of corruption on the part of characters and meaninglessness on the part of the world? Hmm. Okay. Firstly, hello, Tom, if you're listening, I quite like the article. <laughs> Secondly, I think that line that you quote from Succession may well be the decisive line, actually. Mm. So you'd be familiar with this idea. I'm sure someone very smart said it, who you will remember and quote, but that the meta narrative of a culture is expressed through its popular culture. And so what, what I find interesting about the shows that you're talking about there, and you are looking at the prestige end of things, I suppose Game of Thrones is prestige, isn't it? I don't know. If, I'm not sure actually exactly what falls into that category. Certainly well, the production yeah. values and the money and all of that is. Could I just say briefly, what differentiates prestige television from other forms of television is the thing that differentiates literature from yeah. paperbacks. Yeah. So, so these are shows that enjoy a degree of writing, not just a quality of composition, but have in and of themselves a literary quality that is undeniable and an attentiveness to, if we can put it this way, characterological depth that is, that is so far and above the kind of the single hit serialized episodes where, yeah. you know, you get one show, it's a self-contained narrative. If you tune in next week, you missed absolutely It doesn't nothing. matter. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand that. But I mean... There's a certain subjective line there that's very difficult to identify, and some yeah. shows seem to start in that category and move. Like, so I think of a show like Billions, which at the start has all the trappings of prestige television, and you feel like there's something exciting and interesting, and perhaps with a lot of depth going on here. And then by the end of, I think it's still going, but by the end of its most recent series, you're kind of like, well, you either find this fun or you don't, but it's not, you know, it's either a, a silly show pretending to be smart or a smart show being silly. I'm not sure exactly which. So these are slippery categories. Maybe they're not altogether that important. But the shows that you're talking about, um, I think what's interesting is they do really give an expression to Kendall's line. I mean, I'm thinking about Breaking Bad, which is the one mm. I'll probably think most about only because I hadn't seen it until recently and I've only just recently finished watching it. I, so, so, I so love that you did. That, yeah, that, that I, made my year, Willie. That well, made me very yes, happy. I'm glad I have that effect. Um, it's... I mean, it's truly, truly is a masterpiece. But is there a sense of virtue winning in that? I, I, I'm not so sure yes. that there is. Oh. Yes. And it is Jesse driving away to an unknown location. It seems to me that that is, that is Jesse's ascent from hell. Okay. So if you want to argue that that's really what the whole show is building towards, fine. But I feel like, well, that, I think that, I feel like that skips over so much of the show, which is really about, I think, and I don't want to go too far into shows because people will not have seen them and then it just becomes a pointless discussion no one can follow, mm. right? But, but I think what's interesting about a show like that is, to me anyway, the theme of that show is the sort of imperceptibly gradual moral compromises that one can make such that every decision seems justifiable in the mm. moment. And then one day you look back and you go, how did this person become a total monster? And at no point along the road did the audience stop following them. 
right? I know the writers of Breaking Bad made this point. They were shocked by just how far the audiences were prepared to go with the main character. Mm. By the end, there was nothing he could do that they wouldn't really support because they were on board with his... I was trying to avoid journey, but it really was, right? That, well, yes, but it's a journey for those who haven't seen it. It's a journey that's defined by Walter White's mortality. In other words, the fact of his cancer. Well, is it? I think it starts well, that way, but by the end, it seems far right. from clear that that's actually that's the motivation, right. right? That's right. And so now what happens then when the amoralism of a character or the immoralism of a character, immorality... Amorality, sorry. <laughs> the character becomes the thing that you discover and yet the audience is invited into and goes along with cheering them the whole way. So what happens, culturally speaking, when, when that's the fair, that is actually the best of what we have? Or to go back to the way I framed it initially, what's the social meta-narrative that's at play here? And I wonder if the social meta-narrative is that quote from Kendall. Mm. A kind of nihilism, really, where what we've decided is that the world is irredeemably corrupt. And so we're actually more interested, not in the people who valiantly resist and overcome this, not in the Superman figure. We're more interested in the Joker. Mm. We're more interested in the antihero. We're more interested in... Like, the baddies more interesting because they are ruthless enough to succeed they are limitless enough in what they're prepared to do to succeed. There's something about them that we come even to, to admire. You occasionally have the villain. So in order for the villain to be someone that we really, really, really don't like, it has to be someone utterly ridiculous, like a, a Joffrey in Game of Thrones, where you're just waiting for someone to kill this guy because <laughs> everyone else is dying. All the good people are dying. Can someone just kill this guy? Because there's just nothing redeeming. But what ends up happening there is you have a character that's extremely flat, right? So the, w there's a fascinating transition here that I think is simultaneously laudable and worrying, right? What's laudable about it is this preparedness to engage in the complexity of characters who do bad things. So once upon a time, the world seemed to be there were good guys and there were bad guys and the bad guys really had nothing to redeem them and you didn't really have any attraction to them. And that was, the, that was kind of the point, right? And so someone who behaved in a certain way was not to be understood or engaged with, with any level of human complexity because they weren't human at all, really. The Bond villain type scenario. Mm, right? mm. Somewhere along the way, we discovered that it's actually far more interesting to delve into what makes these people and how are they in fact like us. And there's something I think really laudable, even morally laudable about that, right? But there comes a point where I, I guess the way you would put it is the telos disappears. And mm. I agree that it makes for riveting television. So we both agree. Succession is a masterpiece. Breaking Bad is a masterpiece. I've never seen The Sopranos. So I'll have to do that eventually. But by all accounts, a masterpiece. A masterpiece in the way that I think The West Wing isn't, right? Yeah. So the television, I think we can fairly safely say, is getting better. Is the cost of that, though, a meta-narrative that's not really worth having as a society? Not that television's causing that, but that it's reflecting that. So that you can only make television of this quality when you've lost the constraints that a kind of meta-narrative that might be 
a lot more useful in a whole lot of other situations has eroded. Yeah. Um, it is really striking to me, Walid, that exactly the complexity that we are invited to witness in prestige television, we are now denying in the wider world. This is one of the things I find extraordinary. We allow for a degree of complexity in these really fascinating villains, and yet we insist on referring to actual human being moral agents as irredeemably bad, irredeemably bleak. We Um, turn them into the cartoon characters. Exactly right. And I think what that reflects, just as a little footnote, I mean, movies, I think, are still the dominant cultural force, but movies have become the domain of the spectacular. It's no wonder that superheroes, that superficial, huge monopoly franchises that gobble up everything in its wake like Disney have so completely dominated our movie space so that movies have become increasingly superficial. There are notable exceptions, exceptions that you and I both love, but there are notable exceptions. But for the most part, the mass marketed movies, these are spectacles. These are spectacular. And as such, they are superficial. They are the goodies and the baddies with very, very little in between. So I find it heartening that television has given itself over to what used to be the domain of films. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, Succession and Sopranos has far more in common with The Godfather, for instance, yeah. than anything that Marvel and, and has. And even a show which we haven't mentioned, which I think is utterly marvellous, which is um, Mr. Robot, um, was originally a film. That was the <laughs> idea. It was originally for it to be a film. But what's interesting is they had to become television series because that imbued them with enough complexity. You couldn't yes, do it exactly. in a film, actually. There's a limit to the complexity you can explore in a film because of their relative brevity. And I think what's been really nice is that the traditional 26-episode season has been all but entirely abandoned in favor of what used to be a short, what used to be considered a short-run series, Mm. namely 10 or 12 episodes. But it's that kind of arc. In other words, what we're seeing in prestige television is essentially really, 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 really long movies. Yeah. Uh, with a with a narrative that runs all the way through. One other quick point before you bring in our guest, and it seems to me that this is really important. I think one of the things, one of the reasons that we are being ushered into the life worlds of these either incredibly morally complex or thoroughly morally depraved people is that ever since Shakespeare's Richard III, there is something about evil figures that ushers audiences into their confidence. Evil figures are after co-conspirators. Think about the way Richard III is the only such character. I mean, there's an argument for Hamlet, but Richard III is the only such character who addresses the audience directly, who brings them kind of Frank Underwood or Francis Urquhart style from a, a house of cards. Well done that, on the English reference. Very good, thank Scott. Thank you. That, well, because Francis Urquhart is far more compelling. Anyway, anyway, oh, who kind of brings the audience into his confidence. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why these irredeemably evil characters, they have to have wealth because they have to have leisure time. There is a contemptuousness for the everyday that characterizes these evil figures. They have to be able to swan around. They have to be released from the constraints of everyday life. And so there's something about their charisma. There's something about their seductiveness. There's something about the leisure that's afforded them. And of course, their rhetorical power that needs to bring audiences in to give the audiences access to forms of life, to forms of thinking, to forms of opulence that are otherwise denied them. So there is something, I think, inherently narcissistic. There is something uh, centripetal about these, these evil figures, even if they're not thoroughly evil, but simply you know, irredeemably morally compromised, that draws audiences. By contrast, 
virtuous characters are most often immersed in the world of the everyday. They are the characters who have to labor. They also are the characters, and this is one of the qualities, I think, of a moral saint. A moral saint does not direct attention to themselves, but rather directs attention to others as proper objects of love. And let me just mention very briefly the one show, I think, of the last two decades that has done labor, that has done work well, and that's The Wire. The three characters who it seems to me qualify as moral saints, because what you see through them are their proper objects of love, are the uh, the communities or the individual persons to which they've devoted themselves. You've got Kima Greggs, played by Sonia Son. You've got Lester Freeman, who is my favorite character of the last 50 years, uh, played by Clark Peters, and of course, Omar Little, um, by the late Michael K. Williams. All three are immersed in various forms of a kind of world of work. All three are compromised in their own way. All three do things that are subject to moral judgment, I think. But all three... What is spectacular about them is the degree to which their virtue lets you look through them and see things that are beautiful and worthwhile, even in an otherwise depraved world, in this particular instance, the city of Baltimore. So I think that for me, the focus on villains isn't new. It goes back to Shakespeare. It's what affords villains the ability to draw audiences into their orbit. And that's why I think succession really is the inheritor of what Shakespeare recognized as a necessary plot driver. There needs to be leisure time. There needs to be opulence. There needs to be a kind of rhetorical seductiveness and appeal to draw people into their world. But that's easier to portray on television. This is why The Wire is an irrepeatable masterpiece. It's easier to portray that, the world of opulence, than a world with rare moral saints who allow you to see something dirty as if it were a proper object of love. Mm, I'm just thinking where you would put people like Jon Snow or Tyrion in this because they, the opulence and the high standing is kind of there until it's sacrificed. I don't know. I have to think about this. You're listening to The Minefield. If you just joined us, you can uh, listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. It's a real and rare delight to have not just a guest of this standing in studio. Jason Jacobs is Professor of Film and Television Studies in the School of Communication and the Arts at the University of Queensland. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so look, one show that we haven't mentioned that I feel I really should mention, and then you can take us wherever you want to, is Deadwood. It's a show to which you've devoted considerable critical attention. But one of the things that marks out Deadwood, and maybe this is almost the perfect example of so much of what we've been describing, Deadwood is by definition a lawless town. Law isn't established from above, nor even from within. It has to be established in between characters, almost ad hoc. And it's also a world in which words win the day. And the real struggle is the struggle for some place, some home, some meaning in a world defined by, I mean, really quite filthy words in many respects, but also opportunities for extraordinary rhetoric. To what, I mean, Deadwood is also taking place in this crucial period of the 2000s, the birth, I think, of prestige television. How does 
what we've been talking about and wrestling about, is there something I think particular, peculiar, unique that Deadwood contributes to this conversation? Well, Deadwood's a peculiar thing. You're right to say that it's typical of that early period of quality, signature, television, drama. But it's I think it's it's really a post nine eleven show that engages with you know questions about how we rebuild uh, the world from scratch. So although it's set in the eighteen seventies, it's set in this lawless town of Deadwood, a place that's been stolen from Native Americans. Um, it feels to me when I was writing about it that it was almost a kind of way of imagining a future. How would we start again from nothing? How would we improvise language? How would we improvise law? How would we improvise community in a setting where there's no rules, no law, no external authority, where human beings, the lowliest, most degraded degenerates of the earth, come together, how could that group of people actually produce something that is good, virtuous, community-spirited? And that's really what the show is about. So it's, it's almost a, an anti-David Lynch mm. uh, kind of an anti-Twin Peaks, whereas in Twin Peaks, on the surface of Twin Peaks, in that town, everything is kind of nice and suburban and ordered, whereas underneath that surface there is evil and degeneracy and degradation and murder. In Deadwood, it's the other way around. On the surface, there's violence, there's, there's bad language, there's murder, there's evil. But underneath that, there is a core of spiritual nourishment that the characters, that the drama of the show um, seeks to discover in each of the characters, in particular in the ways in which these individual characters have to learn to work together, have to learn to improvise a society, a community together. And that's really what I saw in the show, that it was a way of trying to think of America again, as America always does after, you know, during moments of crisis, it tries to start again to reinvent itself. And that's really what was significant about Deadwood. Hmm. Can I ask you, actually, I don't mean this to be tangential, so I hope it's relevant to what we're talking about here, Jason, but the, what do you make of the changing nature of endings that I kind of mentioned right at the start and we haven't really spoken about? So, I mean, you've spoken there about a world that looks, looks nice but isn't and the opposite, right? But then I think about the endings that we get in shows, and they're often deformed endings, right? The, the, mm. the happily ever after things disappeared, which is the, the point of that article that we mentioned, or one of the points. And I wonder then what we're being left with. Is the point the thing we see on the surface or the thing we see underneath, or is the point that neither of those is true? A and if we zoom out from all that, is the, is the ultimate conclusion that we're being urged to reach here something of an inescapable, inescapably irredeemable nature, that, that we've so lost faith in the world that it actually doesn't matter whether you start at the bottom and go to the top or the top and go to the bottom. What you get is murk, and that's really all that we're now capable of saying. Um, that's a fantastic uh, question. I mean, I, I've been listening to your conversation, and I think that, I, well, first of all, it's just important to remember that this is this is nothing new in a way. It, we can notice it in television, in 
in this this dimension of the cultural imagination. But really since the late 19th century, there has been this pessimistic, almost apocalyptic feeling about, in the West, obviously in particular, about the future of society, what Susan Sontag called in her brilliant essay, AIDS and its Metaphors, uh, not apocalypse now, but apocalypse from now on, this feeling of a constant sense of an ending. And I feel that that has insinuated itself into the lining of much of what we see in quality television or prestige television or mass culture in general. And, of course, some of that finds its way into endings. Now, endings are peculiar things on television because part of what they need to do is acknowledge the grief of, of a kind of a breaking up of the end of a, of a companionship or a marriage between the audience and the show. But some of those endings, yes, do point toward what Sontag's talking about, this, this kind of deadening sense that has not been resolved for well over 100 years, that the world has not quite found a coherent set of meanings around and, and an authoritative set of meanings around which to organize itself and what we see repeatedly in these in these television shows more than any other form more than art or literature or painting is that this figuring of a kind of confusion a disorientation about meaning itself about where we find secure meaning where we find authoritative meaning and uh, in the real world, as it were, we're often drawn magnetically to binaries, to black and white, whereas in the television dramas that we, that we see, in television fiction that we see, uh, there's this much more profound and complex set of distinctions and ambiguities and gradations and shadings of meaning, as if the, the writers and the creators are trying to feel their way into some reliable foundation of authoritative meaning. And that's why I think TV drama and mass, looking at mass culture is like, as, as you've said, a lens onto the looking at the meta-narrative of our, um, of our cultural imagination. I mean, that's, it's like a laboratory. And, but, but it's ultimately and, a bleak one, isn't it? That's what I mean. So, well, so when I, I think, don't think so, Waleed. Really? Yeah, well, sorry, make, make your point and then I'll try to make Well, I, so this is where I think endings are interesting because I, I get the argument that you can say this isn't new, but it feels new. Like, I, I, I don't know, before this last century, let's say, I watched most things expecting a happy ending. That, that's kind of what I would expect to turn up, right, in film, in television, at the very worst, you might get a bittersweet sort of ending. I mean, it's hard for me to do this with examples, but that's just my sense of what the stuff I used to watch, right? Weirdly, the exception to that might have been children's tales. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right? It's true. Whereas now mm. it's the opposite. Every children's story I've noticed has to end in a pristine way. It's, everything's very happy. There's no Charlotte's Web anymore. Meanwhile, adults are watching these things that always end in morally ambiguous ways. We, what exactly is right and wrong in the context of this show? I don't even know anymore. It's very hard to say. That's all become a bit relative. Is this world redeemed or not? Well, that's very hard to say. In other words, everything just seems so damaged. And I don't recall damaged being something that I, I would have a word I would have used to describe the ending of shows prior to this century. I feel like that is a, a genuine shift. 
and not the idea of the apocalypse that was always going and has been for a very long time, more a realisation that, bloody hell, maybe we're in the apocalypse all of a sudden. We, th- we thought there was a way through. Maybe the Cold War gave us this sense, the end of history, all of that. But now we've decided, no, no, there isn't. Just don't tell the kids that. Well, I think it's obviously right that the Cold War suspended ordinary kind of uh, international and cultural relations for a while and uh, we've returned to a much more volatile uh, you know, geopolitical situation. But uh, and, and, and Wally's absolutely right, of course, that there, were, uh, there was a kind of a much more upbeat sense to television and to some extent film um, in the in the 20th century not not so much literature i would say mm, or, or painting so i know I, I accept that and in a sense television is caught up with those other art forms um but i do see i find myself in a rather odd position here in relation to both of you because i do feel there's something quite positive about um the marvel um cinematic universe and the sort of um their forays into television, because what you see in the in the Marvel films and in the TV shows is that extraordinary sense in which we have these sort of super superhuman uh, superheroes with special powers, these absolutely singular individuals who have to work together, who have to work collectively in order to defeat a fairly cookie cutter evil. And so there's something optimistic, actually, in, in the Marvel universe. And there's character depth there, not so much in the in the films and the TV shows themselves, but certainly in the fan fiction that those uh, films and TV shows produce, where we have an extraordinary rich sense in which uh, fans of the show extend and elaborate uh, the characters' stories. So I just wanted to put in a, a kind of a more optimistic and positive sense about some aspects of, of television. Um, if you've just joined us on the radio, this is The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host. The voice you just heard belongs Professor of Film and Television Studies at the School of Communication and Arts at the University of Queensland. Ah. Uh. Uh, I I couldn't disagree more about Marvel, but that's I, I do feel that that's a conversation for for another day. Let me simply pick this up. I really like the idea. I like the diagnosis that something's gone wrong with our endings, that we've become unmoored from our endings. And as you watch television, you are no longer guaranteed that everything is leading towards a final conclusion. Jason is absolutely right. This is not a new phenomenon. If one take, thinks, for example, of the difference between, say, Charles Dickens and George Eliot, uh, both serialized novels or novelists, both there was something about the serialization that was central to, that was inherent to the great achievement of their arts. But with Dickens, you always feel as though you're being led by the nose through, and I, I love Dickens, this is not a criticism, but you always feel as though everything is going to end up, without deviation, everything is going to end up with that perfect little Dickensian bow at the end, where everyone is revealed to have, to have some deeper relation. And the endings are, are almost always completely, 100% satisfactory. By contrast, George Eliot, she's the great novelist of the in-between, of these extraordinarily fecund 
spaces in between characters. So whatever weight you give to the end in Dickens suddenly becomes realized in between individual characters. And sometimes individual characters in sort of concentric circles as you go through. So the end mightn't be as satisfactory. But the richness of the space in between George Eliot's characters, I think it far supersedes anything that, that Dickens achieved. Think about that, for instance, with a show like The Wire, which I apologize for coming back to it, but it is the, I think, unimpeachable televisual achievement of the last half century. Nothing, I mean, each, each of the five seasons of The Wire ends with disappointment, with virtue losing, with whatever it is that the characters are struggling towards inevitably coming to nothing. But what has been achieved is something in between characters or in between characters and, say, the institutions that they love, whether it be public schooling or the media or labor unions or the police force. Something has been redeemed in the interim. So the end isn't satisfactory, but something in between takes place that is beyond value. And I think that is a moral vision. That is a moral vision where even though it may be a universe devoid of stars, something is discovered in between the characters that could not have been predicted in advance, that couldn't have been imagined when you set out from the beginning. And for, for me, one of the finest, more recent examples of that would be two short-run series. One, David Simon's magnificent six-part Show Me a Hero based on a, a piece of nonfiction by Lisa Belkin about the achievement of of public housing equality in the New York uh, suburb of Yonkers. It's satisfactory and not. It's a tragedy and not. But what's discovered through the course of those six episodes is a kind of mutual inclination of members of a community that thought they couldn't be further apart and recognize something indisputably, inextinguishably human and therefore worthy of love in one another. The other one for me is the remake of Ingmar Bergman's uh, Scenes from a Marriage, the most recent one by, with uh, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain, which begins with the characters coming into the set. I mean, quite literally coming into the set with directors and cinematographers all around. You're dared from the very beginning, forget, you know, forget that this is a performance, that this is make-believe. Uh, all the emphasis is placed on what it is that's broken between what it is that is achievable between these two broken characters. And the achievement of that five-part series is like nothing I've ever seen before. There is, it's a universe devoid of stars, devoid of love, devoid of whole human relationships. And yet something emerges in between these two that I think is better than any happy ending. So I, I just wonder, Jason and Waleed, Yes, we maybe were devoid of happy endings, but characters are discovering moral limits and moral possibilities in the midst of things, not at the end, but in the midst of things. They're discovering invitations to what Stanley Cavell calls moral perfectionism. They're encountering these perfectionist moments where everything is demanded to respond best, to respond rightly in a particular moment without any guarantee that good is going to win, that your best intentions are going to be rewarded. That's a moral vision, and it seems to me that that's a moral vision worth fighting for. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, as you were talking, I, I was reminded of Breaking Bad. The, the moment for me at the end of Breaking Bad, without wanting to spoil it, is the moment where the major character in it finally is honest, 
for the mm. almost the only time in the entire season. That moment of honesty after six, seven seasons maybe last less than 30 seconds. I yet, did it because I wanted to. Because I wanted yeah. to. And that moment of honesty where he finally sheds the bad faith, which I think many of us live with in this desperately uncomfortable way, morally uncomfortable way. Um, those, as you say, those sort of everyday mobilization and confession strike me as, as being morally uh, central uh, to our lives. And so much of what we're encouraged to do is performative, is to share ourselves and our experiences as if we're some kind of brand. And it all feels inauthentic. So to have a television show that one can be invested in over years and weeks, or if you're binging over days, and then have a moment like that strikes me as absolutely... It's pure Stanley Cavell. That is precisely what Cavell is thinking about when he's talking about moral perfectionism. It isn't, it isn't a, an attainable state that one can stay in forever, but it, one can have one's moments uh, where one discovers the opportunity or the occasion. And it's at that moment of absolute... Um, the end of everything for the central character, really, where he's finally able to be truly honest and uh, uh, for me that's one of the pinnacles of television drama of art itself oh, is that moment and there is a sense of setting things right isn't there at the end of, mm. of that series but it, mm. it leaves me wondering okay so where is the audience in say an ending like that when all along they've been prepared to go along <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm speaking for myself. I found that moment of honesty that you're talking about compelling, but at the same time a tad disappointing. Mm. Because he was capable of it or because he wasn't capable of it before that point? No, because he was capable of it, of the honesty. Interesting. I guess in a sense, maybe I, I, I will confess to being quite a naive watcher in a lot of ways. Um, but in a sense, his true motivations were an open question for me. Right. We're we're talking, by the way, about Walter White as the, the main as the yeah. head of a sprawling methamphetamine production. Um, yeah, empire. as the as the end point of a story that begins with him facing his impending death from cancer and trying to raise money to support his family, right? And you're left with well, questions about at what point did that change? Was it always the case that it wasn't about that? Um, I don't know, but I. Yeah, I take the point. I think it's a very good reading of it to, to talk about that moment of, of honesty and of moral growth as a result of that and then the ending that becomes poetic in that, in that context. But I'm still left with everything that led up to it <laughs> and, and the well, utterly destroyed people that are, are left in its wake. Um, I think part of what's happening in Breaking Bad is that Walter becomes a kind of superhero. He becomes uh, uh, Heisenberg. And he lives this identity, this changed identity, and then finally he realizes it was it was dressing up, and uh, he has to confront, uh, you know, has to confront his wife with the truth. So, for me, that's that's part of the the kind of comic book aspect to to Breaking Bad that's always there, 
um, sort of alongside the main narrative in a way that isn't in The Wire. The Wire is this perfect, almost 19th century social mm. realist mm, right. uh, piece of journalism, really. It's absolutely compelling in those, in those ways. But uh, So quite unlike the more uh, comic book Breaking Bad, but both seem to me absolutely compelling forms and, and both are very successful uh, dramas, obviously. I like the idea of Heisenberg as a superhero outfit. I do like that. Mm. I guess the question for me, and we're talking about Breaking Bad far more than I thought we would. I mean, it is, it is a masterpiece. I, I'll never forget, you know, those shows that you would do anything to go back and watch again for the first time. I remember vividly midway through the second season realizing mid-episode, I have no idea what's coming next. Yeah, oh, I had that I'd all the time. Yeah, I've just given up knowing, knowing what I think might happen at the end. I guess the question for me then, I mean, to some extent, the dawning of the persona of Heisenberg, the deathless one, the one who knocks. <laughs> um, which, is just, which is a lie, I mean, right? Of course it's a lie, but it's also, it's compensating for tremendous sense of powerlessness and even emasculation in many respects. Hank, of course, mm. is the, his brother-in-law is the persistent source of that, of that sense of emasculatedness, of impotence. But I guess the question for me is, at the very end, when he tells the truth, and ultimately he's not just telling the truth to his wife. This is why it's almost a perfectionist moment, but it's not quite a perfectionist moment. He's kind of telling the truth to his wife when he's saying, I did this not because I was forced to, but because I wanted it. Ultimately, he's telling the truth to himself. The question for me is, at that moment of tremendous moral transformation, is he completely owning the identity of, Eisen of, of Heisenberg? Or is he finally, finally shrugging it off? Mm. Which, which, which isn't just a question for people who love the show. But I think it's, one of the, it's, it's a profoundly moral question, what's the greater demand to be truthful fully to oneself, to shed a lie that has been a kind of cocoon that's become an ersatz placebo that you've been living within, or to completely own up to one to whom you have a primary obligation, uh, a friend, a wife, one who places that moral demand upon you. Um, this, this type of television, I think, places moral demands uh, on viewers, quite apart from the sex, quite apart from the language. Uh, that really uh, you have to go back to the 19th century to fully recognise. Yeah. And there's, there's, sorry, Walid, but there's another aspect, just to pick up on what you said about George Eliot, to, to his confession, which is he confessed that he liked making the drug because he was good at mm. it. It was work he was good at. And how often do we fall into what I think may, might be a moral mistake of pursuing that which we're already good at mm. and mm. neglecting those things which we could improve at? kind of connects a bit more to Cavell. And so I think that's also compressed into that moment, that sense in which I did it because I was really good at it and I kept wanting to be really good at something. Um, and there's a moral danger uh, mm -hmm. there as well, I think. Sorry, Wally, to interrupt. No, and that turns up earlier in the show, right, where he says... Whether, we might be the best in the world at doing this. That's not something you just walk away from. <laughs> just, <laughs> interesting. Um, Scott, you've kind of delivered a perfect full stop to the year because as you were talking, I was thinking we're really back to this notion of authenticity, this sort we of Heideggerian right. notion of what's meant to follow and, and fill the God-shaped hole um, in secular Europe. And 
that was in the middle of our nihilism chat, which is kind of where we began this show. So well done, Scott. That's excellent. Um, We are, I'm afraid, at the end, not merely of the show, but of the year on the minefield. As I say, though, um, you'll still hear from us in the form of best ofs, which have been selected by people other than me and will roll out over the summer. But we do need to say goodbye and thank you to quite a lot of people, I think it's fair to say. Jason, I want to begin by thanking you. Thank you very much for being episode of The Minefield for the year. It's been wonderful to have access to you. Um, Jason Jacobs, Professor of Film and Television Studies at the University of Queensland. And then I should point out there's this whole army of operators uh, that work behind the scenes as we try to cobble together a show across cities, one of which is often in lockdown, and uh, it's more complicated logistically than you think and technically. So thank you so much. Paul Penton and his team of operators have really been outstanding for this whole year. That team specifically is Richard Govan, Kerry Dell, Matthew Crawford, Brendan O'Neill, Melissa May, Julian McKenzie, Andy Grant, Chrissy Miltiado, Tim Simmons, and Ariel Gross. That's just in Melbourne. Then, of course, there's the Brisbane crew, Steve Fieldhouse, Dave White, Cy Rawalui, and Ni Adapwebi. And we even have operators in Perth, David LeMay, who's helped us out this year as well. That spans just about all of the country. Apologies to the Northern Territory, who seem to have missed out this year. It's true. Um, but it's a vast operation. And our final thanks, oh, I suppose I should thank you too, Scott, for turning up. No, I mean, that helps. Sorry. But our final thanks must go to producer Sinead, who I think... How would you describe it, Scott? Is, is, I feel like backbone, there's not really a, an organ or an anatomical part no. that can capture the contribution that, that Sinead makes. No, look, quite simply, the show couldn't be the show without Sinead. I, I would simply say we don't do things because we worry what Sinead might think, yep. and we do do things because we want that smile of approval when we're done. And yet, when we're on air, we mostly ignore what she's telling <laughs> us <laughs> we have to do, such as wrap up. So, Sinead, thank you. Uh, dear listener, thank you. And to all the operators we've mentioned, thank you. With any luck, we'll be back again next year uh, for another edition of The Minefield, where I'm sure we will solve no problems at all, but it seems to have worked so far. Have a great summer. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.